Hi, everybody. This is David Reese, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads and Survivors, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of Focus on Metal. Unfortunately, the insanity just continues unabated out there as we work our way through this just fucked up 2020. You know, just weeks after weeks, it just kind of starts to fry your brain. So much so, I went to start recording this today, and I couldn't figure out why I wasn't getting any vocals through the monitors or anything. It took me about 10 minutes to realize that my dumb ass had not turned the power on to the entire analog rack that all of this stuff goes through. So yeah, of course I'm not going to hear a damn thing. And then to add to the whole fucked upness of it, I'm actually doing this whole thing a week ahead of when I normally would just in case because I'm still going in every day. So I'm still potentially exposing myself that, uh, you know, you never know. So I want to try to keep myself at least ahead a little bit so that if, uh, if I do uh, come down with this, that I can I can make it through and try to keep you guys uh, with focus on metal every single week, even if I potentially don't feel up to doing it. So yeah, how's that for a happy fucking ray of sunshine message? But on a happier note, even though a lot of releases have been getting pushed out and pushed out, some other ones are still making it to our little metal ear holes. You know, the other day I did get in my uh, Titans of Creation Testament box set. Very happy about that. Way cool vinyl. So uh, good things are happening there, including what uh, was coming out of our guest this week. David Reese is back on the show with us, and he is here to talk about his brand new one, Cacophony of Souls. And I don't know, I, I hear that title, and I just think that is a great freaking Megadeth song title. But good stuff on this one. Released it back in uh, about the middle of March, and it's out on El Puerto Records. In you know, 12 tracks. I think it's 12 tracks. Good stuff. Everything is uh, some really good rockers in there. Some of the stuff even has a little bit of a, I don't know, to my ears anyways, a little bit of a VH feel on a couple of them. But David is going to go through all about what's going on with that, how this one came to be, the folks he's working with, some of the folks he worked in in the past, and just get into the whole thing about that. Uh, but also a little bit special this week is the fact that uh, Part of the the order of of running all these audio that we're building up very quickly as Richie's been uh, madly interviewing all kinds of people is that, you know, David is out there, lives in Italy, so he's kind of at one of those ground zero spots for the whole shit show that's going on right now. So it's also there, you know, to be able to get uh, his viewpoint of how things are going how his world is right now as, uh, you know, we just kind of work our way through. Because sometimes we're just, especially, you know, those of us here in the U.S., we just know what's going on with us. He's given us a little bit of a different point of view and an interesting one because, you know, here it is. He's a, he's an American over in Italy and, and the stuff he's having to deal with. So we talk a little bit about that, but then we also talk a crap load about the brand new one, Cacophony of Souls. And if you're hemming hard about whether you want to, uh, you know, check this one out, well, then you can go hit, you know, some of the few samples up on Amazon, check out a few song clips, but then also, you know, head over to YouTube and check out a couple of the videos that David has rolled out for the new one. But uh, right now, why don't I turn it over to my buddy Richie as he talks with David Reese 
all about Cacophony of Souls. Hey, who's hey. this, Richie? Yeah, how you doing, David? Nice to talk to you again. You too, how are you? I'm all right. I just had to run in there. I was like, I got a couple of minutes, and then the phone went, and I went, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know you're in Italy, right? Um, I yeah. don't want to spend too long talking about what's going on there, but I have to ask, like, how bad is it there? Terrible. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely diabolical. The death rates keep climbing. Infections are climbing. Um, I don't know if it's slowed down because we get different news every day. Yeah. Um, I think on Friday or Saturday in my area along with 34 deaths. Oh. So I don't even look anymore because it's just depressing. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat here. Like, I'm just outside of Boston. And yeah. the question I want to ask you is, um, you, you obviously have family and all that back in the U.S., and I've got family in Ireland where I'm from, and if anything happens, I can't go back there. Correct. Yeah, My so, mother's in uh, old, old person's home in Texas. Um, she's healthy so far. They're keeping everybody away from everybody, and uh, they're delivering the food daily. Um. I was actually, you know, with this postponement body show, going to go back to America and go back to my day job, but I can't even leave the country. Yeah. And there's no jobs. I mean, everybody's getting laid off. Yeah. I'm um, I'm actually in work because I work on a farm, so we're part of the food supply chain. So we're one of the few You're places. A farmer. Mm. You work in farming. Yeah. What do you do? I, I know. <laughs> what do Everything, I do? Everything, huh? Yeah, well, we do plants and herbs and all that stuff. So, you You're know, any livestock? Uh, no, no, no animals. Ah, that's what I did in Montana. I worked cattle and uh, horses and hogs and everything. You know. So, are you basically are you basically in lockdown? Then you can't even leave the house. Yeah, I, um, I, I can go outside in my yard, but I'm not allowed to walk around the city. Um, only one person can go from the house to uh, shopping, and it's only for food essentials and pharmacy. Yeah. Uh, so it's pretty maddening. I think I'm on about week five or six myself. Wow. Uh, my, my wife went grocery today, gave me a credit card, and they'll go stock up for another two weeks. And uh, it's, it's nuts. I mean, we have lines, you know, before you can go inside. I think they allow six persons per time in the store. Hmm. And she she looked like an alien today. She had a uh, like a bonnet tied around her head. She had goggles. She had a uh, rubber gloves, a mask. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's like another planet, you know. It's not even hard to explain. It is, isn't it? Like I, I, my son is ten, and he's 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 telling me every night he's really worried, and I'm like. I'm trying to say to my son, it's going to be okay. And then I'm thinking to myself, I've never gone through anything like this before. Yeah. I did in Los Angeles in the riots and I think, 93. Yeah. When the, the big riot broke out. And then the following year, we were hit with the uh, Northridge earthquake, which was a 7.6, which just, I was on the other side of the hill. It hit in the valley, but it shook my house to pieces. And that same year of the earthquake, we had the Malibu fires. So I started having, like, physical panic attacks, you know, because there was so, so much chaos for, like, 18 months. 
when I said, screw it, we're leaving. And I left the music, it was everything. I mean, it wasn't really happening for me because of grunge anyway, but we bought a farm in Tennessee and it was like culture shock for my ex-wife. I mean, it was like no noise, total peace and quiet. Uh, but I, I couldn't take it anymore. That was the closest I've seen. And that, that doesn't even compare to this. Yeah, it, did. Know, it looked like Terry Abel out my window during the riots. I was watching South Central Los Angeles on fire for uh, 10 days. But this is it's like a, a quiet killer, you know? Yeah, yeah. Every night every night I go to bed, I pray that I, I, I don't catch the virus because, you know, I'm 59. If I get it, you know, I'm probably a good candidate for it to kill me. But I don't want my the people that I live with to get it, my wife, you know what I mean? Hmm. So I, it's weird. I, I don't go anywhere, but you never know if it's in the air or, or what. I don't know what to believe. I know, I know. Here, David, let's talk music. <laughs> All right. Yeah, but your, your son is confounded. I mean, all I can advise you is to give him hope and, and it's going to be fine. That's your job as a father, comfort him. Um, you know, that's, that's really all you can do, right? Yeah, that's all he can do. I got a, I got a four-year-old, a five-year-old daughter and a ten-year-old son. Yeah. God bless you, mate. I yeah. pray for you. Yeah, so so let's talk about the new record, Cacophony of Souls. Okay, um, you got it. It's been out a little bit now. Uh, how's your reaction been so far to it? Simply amazing. Uh, the best reviews I've had in years um, surpassed the reviews for Resilient Heart. Um, I, I can't be more satisfied. I mean, I've had two really cruddy ones that I think it's personal the way they wrote it. They just don't like me as a person and I don't know them, but for the most part, I'd say everything I've had is fantastic. Are you someone then who pays attention to reviews? Like, cause some people will let reviews get to them and others will say, ah, whatever. It's their opinion. Uh, when they get personal and, and they're not reviewing it as a journalist. Yeah. I mean, you're supposed to kind of stand back and review the music, but I read one, an Italian one, uh, about a week ago where the guy was just basically spewing hate about me. It wasn't about, and then he said, well, there is one good song that I'll give a pass to, but overall this is shite, um, you know, and this singer is shite. And then it was basically just attacking me. And my wife was like, yeah, I'm going to write this guy. And I had to translate it, you know, from Italian to, to English. Real personal. And then there was another one that I, I read that was sent to a black metal magazine. I don't know, even know why they got to review it. They hate everything that's not about death and destruction. So that one I can kind of give a pass to, you know, they just don't like that, this style of music. Mm. No, I don't, even if I get, if, if I get a review where a guy says, okay, I'll give it a 70%. I've heard this before. Uh, but he says that he's actually listened to the songs and, and talks about each track. And actually, I spent some time at it. Then, if he criticizes me, I, I respect that. I mean, I don't expect the world to fall over backwards about me. You know, I mean, you have to be able to take the good with the bad. You know, well, if it's personal, yeah, that, that bothers a person because it's like, what have, what have I done to you? I don't even know you. You know. Hmm. I think David as well. What what you have out there now, and, and I'm an example of it is. I, I'm not from a, a journalistic background. I didn't write professionally for magazines or anything like that. That. There's a lot of people now that, you know, they have their, they can do their own radio shows or whatever to help promote the music and they have the avenue to do it now. Whereas in the past, when it came to that background, it was all funneled in and, you know, the cream of the crop were the guys that you actually read. 
in, yeah. in, in the magazines and, and they had English degrees and they had all that where what you find now is that all you ha- it's a lot of it now is it's, it's fan driven and there's a lot of reviews out there and there's a lot of guys that ha- they have opinions about people in the past and now they have the, the platform to actually say something about it if they like it or not. Yeah. And that, you know, they call themselves so-called journalists, but like, like you say, it's more of a, I think a lot of them are frustrated musicians as well. They see somebody getting a lot of press and media and then they get, it's a jealousy thing. And that, and that's not for my arrogance because I've actually been competitive, you know, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I, I hear a review for an album that I've listened to and gone, this is shit. I've heard this a million times. They didn't put any effort in this, but you know, I wouldn't publicly post it, but, they're getting raved in reviews for, for albums that I wouldn't listen to one or two songs on, you know, but uh, you got to be objective, you know, and like you said, social media has completely flipped, you know, viewpoints on its head. It's more of a keyboard warrior kind of thing, you know, mm. like today I, I was watching a guy, I admire a person who buys 10 CDs a month, you know, that's, that's a lot of money. So the guy posted his favorite 10 CDs that he had bought of the so far of 2020. And my record was in there and somebody else was on my label. And this guy goes, that guy's shit. Why did, why do you rave? Why do you post this? And the guy goes, I buy what I want. And then I chimed in and said, so glad you love me and, and this other band, you know, but, uh, I'm going to give the guy the kudos for buying CDs and actually being a buyer than just complaining, you know, <laughs> And he was saying, why don't you like this album? And the guy goes, well, I don't like them. I didn't buy the album because I don't, I'm not fond of them, but I like these albums. So it's silly, really. You know, if you get sucked into it, you can really open up a can of worms. I, I used to get involved in it, you know, fighting on the internet. It just, it's a waste of time. It is a waste of time because you're, you're not going to change the person's opinion. First of all, they mightn't no. believe it's actually you. <laughs> That's the first thing you got to get over them, over to them. And, they hide behind like they could have a false name or something like that, and you just let just let it ride. Here's, a, here's an example for you: Just Got Soto, you know, and they canceled the Sons of the Follow tour. They were one of the first bands to pull out with the virus, and Jeff was fighting to keep the band on the road. But she and those guys were like, "Man, we're sitting in the parking lot waiting for an email. If they're going to be open tonight, you know, uh, this is getting bad." And a bunch of haters came on and said, you know, I can't believe you canceled, blah, blah, blah. It's not so bad. And Jeff goes, listen, man, get ready. This is a storm coming. And I'm the last one to cancel. And I know Jeff for 40 years, and I know he doesn't cancel. And he was actually trying to beg those guys to stick it out. But, you know, the costs were coming in. that They couldn't even afford to, to stay out. They'd lost, I think, four shows in one week. And then... Everybody else started saying, postpone, cancel, postpone. I mean, he was right, but people were attacking him for doing the right thing. I I interviewed Jeff just before they went on the European tour. One of the questions I asked him was the sickest he's ever done a show. And he told me that he did a show one night. He had pneumonia and he went ahead and pulled and, and did the show. So... I know firsthand when he told me that that he does not cancel shows if he if he can avoid it. Nor do I. I I've been shitting on a both ends, bro. Running behind the PA in a bucket and running to the bathroom in the dressing room and being told by my tour managers, for God's sake, stop. Nope. In two days, you know, so weak I could barely walk. But I, I, I did it probably 
could have killed me, but I'm the same way. You know, weather has stopped me a few times, but that's about it. Or somebody in the band with a family, you know, death or an emergency, of course. But uh, I'm the same. And like you said, Jeff, I know Jeff. He, he fought tooth and nail. So he took it real personal when they started coming after him. And I, I jumped in and said, hey, back off, you know, and they, and they stopped. And as well as that, as, as well as that, David, what you have is you people commenting on something. They don't know the whole story. You know, they they assume they know the whole story, but they don't know what's going on with, you know, with, with the band or with the road crew or the environment, the rain or anything like that. It's utter madness, touring. There's nothing normal about it. It's just how you can deal with it because it's a liquid situation, right? It's fluid. Any tour you do, uh, from ticket sales to illness to, um, you know, breakdowns, uh, anything that can go wrong will go wrong, and it separates the boys from the girls, you know? And uh, like you say, a lot of these people that i found that uh, go after me regarding, say, accept, you know, a lot of those are street team people that are working directly for the band you know, just kiss their ass to get the VIP passes. You know, they don't even know me. You know, I'm, I, they were probably five years old when I did the album. So, you know, uh, I'm aware of this, but you got to be thick skinned. You know, you, you, you can't dwell, especially now. I mean, I've got so much time on my hands. I could drive myself friggin' crazy. But like I said, I, from what I've seen, the reviews have been fabulous. Mm. David, do you think doing the Eat the Heat album in its entirety, um, helped you go in the heavier direction that you've gone on Cacophony of Souls? Actually, the, the truth of the matter is, yes, you know, I did the Steel Factory tour, as you know, opening for UBO, and I was showcasing my last album, Resilient Heart, and the heavier songs that I played from that, along with the Eat to Heat stuff, I was getting a better response. And every night I'd go to the merch booth, I, I, it was like I could clock, look at my clock, and somebody would walk up to the Eat to Heat album, from 1989 and saying, you know, I hated your guts when this came out, but I really grew to love it. And I'd say, well, thank you. You know, and they'd say, can you go back and do songs like Ecstasy? Can you, you know, and I heard that constantly. And I learned a lot from that tour. You know, I studied Udo's songs. I watched him live as much as I could. And what he does works. I mean, he has a way of working an audience, the anthemic metal stuff. And that's what people kind of grew to expect out of me. And I'm still physically able to do it. So, yeah, that was a template for me to to to, uh, to, to write this album, to be honest. Yeah, it was very inspiring. Um, did that make the change of guitarist necessary then to pull that off from Resilient Heart? Uh, well, the, the story behind that is, you know, Andy and I have known each other since except He was next door to me doing... Uh, Mean Machine and Udo. And uh, we'd done a few albums together and some tours uh, back in 2010, 2012. And he came to a Stuttgart show on a Steel Factory tour. And he was invited by myself and by the UDO crew. And he had a long face. I said, what's the matter? He says, I belong up there with you. And to be honest, there were some things going on with those two guitar players. They had never toured like that, the guys in the Million Heart Tour. Um, real family guys, you know, uh, they, I don't think they were fully prepared what it takes to go out and play 30 shows and be away from home. And I knew they were good and, and I'm not taking away anything from their thing, but they just, it wasn't quite right. So 
ironically, they both quit right after the tour. Um, and then, you know, Andy's saying, you never know when the phone's going to ring. So I had nine gigs left to do throughout the year. I called them, and they were all great festivals, and Andy jumped right in. We actually wrote a few songs and showcased those live, and the people would say, that's the new stuff? I'm like, yeah, and they're like, great. So uh, Andy and I said, you know what? Let's just do an album together. You're the guy. And, and it's actually cooler because Andy's got this ability to play as a three-piece, just one guitar player, and have that Van Halen kind of fill the whole stage sound, you know? And and it's just more organic. It's just more metal. And I don't know, overall, it's far better. It, it was the right thing to happen. You know, they happen for a reason. Yeah. Now, David, you've told me in the past that you've always had a great relationship with Udo, but there's certain people out there, and I think this goes for replacement singers in general. They always try and create this, you know, rift, either true or false, that you know, the old singer hates the guts of the, of the guy replacing him. But in a lot of cases, that's never true. No, not at all. And I can say from the day I met that man in 1988, he walked across the patio, shook my hand, and I'm the guy replacing him and said, I wish you all the best. You know, if you need any help or anything, let me know. And it was like I, had, yeah, I hadn't seen him for since 2010. And I went into the bathroom to warm up, and he was on the toilet, and he said, shut up, you know, you don't have to do that. And I was like, oh, no, and he walked out and hugged me, and, and it was like we'd just seen each other. Um, never has he acted that way or I felt that way about him. I actually felt guilty, but he's had a great career on his own, and I have nothing but respect for him. Mm-hmm. Well, Lesson, Bonfire, you know, he told me, you're making a big mistake. You'll, I said, yeah, I told him to fuck off. Because at the time, things were really good between a certain member of the band and I, but everything he said turned out to be true. Watch out for this, watch out for that, you'll see. And I said, man, get out of my face. But, you know, Klaus was right. But I've never had a problem personally with Klaus. We've always been, you know, cordial to one another, respectful. Mm. I'm, I'm, a bi- I'm actually a big Bonfire fan, but I'm a big Bonfire fan when Klaus was in the band. I'm not really a fan of what they're doing now. Yeah, nor am I. And I, and I, you know, it was a great gig for me, but it, it it turned into a really ugly situation. The manager was stealing money, and I knew it, and they didn't want to hear it. And then when I got out of the band, they announced that they fired him and that 100,000 euros was missing. And I said, I told you, I knew it. And I wanted a manager. They refused to do it. And a funny story is that manager, Andy, came to see us play one night, and he didn't know that that guy was managing the band. And that guy had robbed Andy of a lot of money uh, earlier in his career. And when he saw him in the dressing room, he said, I got to go. I can't be in the same room as this guy. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, he robbed me. I mean, a lot of money. And I brought it up to the guitar player's attention. He said, oh, it's a lie. Andy's just jealous. I said, no, Andy and I are friends for 30 years. He doesn't lie. Uh, And I was suspicious anyways. But yeah, I mean... If it's not working and it's not fun, then I'm not going to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think you're in that situation now, David, where you you can do that to a point because I think there's a lot of musicians out there that they're not happy with what they're doing, but that's their only way of making any income. Yeah. What little income there is. But I'm not not one of those people that will sell my soul for, you know... (laughs) 150 euros a day and be around people that are vitriolic and, and not pleasant or honest. I, you know, I have to feel 
I mean, I gave up the dream of being a, a, a democracy and a band of brothers, you know, before Resilient Heart. I realized that that never really happens in a band. There's usually one or two guys that kind of drive the drive the ship, you know, and because everybody's got their agenda and their lives and their families and and their personal dreams and aspirations, and they don't think like you. And you know, it was for years really frustrating to me, but. I realized, you know what, screw it. I'm just going solo. And if, if, if these choices that I make, I've only got myself to blame, you know? I don't have to worry about where this money is or where that guy is or what are they saying or what are they doing. I mean, I, I'm in control of it as much as I can be, you know? David, what do you think is the worst decision that a record label has made concerning your career? My career. Yeah. That the label uh, the label wanted you to do this and you went, I'm not comfortable with that. And they just pushed you down a road that you didn't want to go. With Bangalore Choir, I, can, I remember uh, Kurt Mitchell, who I admired greatly, the guitar player, you know, basically saying to us, one band had broken up and lost. Well, they lost their deal. And our manager was Stevie Nixon's personal manager connected to uh, the big man of the company. And to save the other band that he managed, he basically t- talked me into uh, firing the two guys that started Bangalore Choir. And one of them happened to be a really good friend of Curtis and had a big meeting, bunch of cocaine in the bar, a bunch of beer, telling us this is the right choice. And Curtis said, no way. And it drove a wedge between Curtis and I uh, because it broke, it broke his heart. It was one of those... And it was a bad mistake. I should have said no. The record company wanted it. Um, the management wanted it. And I was afraid to say no because I wanted to keep things going. And I didn't realize the irreparable harm that I had done personally to Curtis. It drove a wedge between us that never healed. Now, we did get back together and play Firecraft as a reunion show, which was amazing in 2010. But you could feel the animosity. And the guy that I had fired was actually playing on stage with us. And he was hugging me saying, hey man, water under the bridge, you know, it was business. But Curtis never got over there. And I regret that greatly. And um, some of that album in particular, we had outside songwriters brought in and they brought in Bon Jovi and Aldo Nova. And it turned out Bon Jovi was trying to rebuild Aldo's career. And they said it'd be a great thing to have a Bon Jovi song on the album. And, uh, you know, being kind of young and stupid, I, I thought it would really help. But it didn't. You know, it was basically Bon Jovi trying to help Aldo get one of his songs out there that he wrote with him. Um, things like that, those kind of uh, corporate things that make you care less because they're multimillionaires. They go home to their big house every night after they leave the office and, and the bands are at home wondering how many bags of ramen noodles they can buy for $10, you know. I've spoken to many musicians and they've all said the same thing when I go down this road. The band would be fine if you let the band alone but they don't leave them alone. Yeah, and and that's one thing that I, you know, one thing that I learned in my career, and I don't know if I told you this before, the hardest thing for me to learn how to say was no. And uh, I've learned how to do that. And I realized after you say no, I don't agree. It's amazing how fast they come back and say, okay, what will it take to make you happy? And I regret personally not standing up for myself Um earlier in my life, uh, managers, uh, labels, because what they think, 
they can destroy a band because they have a vested interest, say, in one person in the group. You know what I mean? Not really the whole picture. And these are these are people's lives, um, you know, their dreams. And when those are shattered, it's hard to let go of that. I mean, Curtis refuses to tour now. Because I bought a house with my money. I teach guitar. I go into my studio every day. This is mine. This grass on the, on the yard is mine. And nobody can take it away from me for the lie. And it really hit me hard. I go, man, you're right. You know, because I'm not playing that game anymore. Yeah. Nowadays, it's a little... Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Go on. Keep going. Well, nowadays, it's a little easier because the business is 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 fledgling at best. And if they really want to sign you, you've got more creative room. Um, you can disagree with them and... I was on a different label for Brazilian Heart, and I was unhappy. And obviously, I could have done another album with him for more money, but I knew going back to El Puerto, they would at least listen to me and do an amazing job with media, getting a hold of Dustin Harden again, hiring him, people like that to work my record. So, I mean, if I balance out an extra three or 4,000 euros to make an album, what's the benefit of getting a label that, say, pays half of what they would pay, but they'd throw their all their eggs in the basket to really push a record. I'm just watching the Van Halen story with Noel Monk. His, uh, he's reading his book. And in those days, they had the, the big crews of people from the record company that were hired to go work the album, right? Uh, even tour managers were, were kind of like a call for all the bands they were trying to break because they knew they could depend on them to get things done. And in those days, they'd send out an EP to the record companies about six weeks before the release and really start to stir and build something, you know? And then when Van Halen came out, kaboom, you know, they, they, they really, they had something special anyways. But what I'm trying to say is my label have gone above and beyond board to promote this album. And that's why I'm talking to you two weeks after release. Cause typically I do all the interviews a month ahead of time, then the release, then it's dead. You got about a month, five weeks of sales, and nobody's talking about it. Hmm. But they've kept this thing walking. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, why do you think, David, in the past, and I've heard a lot of musicians, they'll all moan about the contracts they signed years ago. Why do you think a lot of musicians in the past didn't get more savvy about the business side of it? Like, that they just seem to ignore it and let other people handle it. That it would have been in their best interest to be a little bit more smart about what was actually going on there. Money. Um, typically, like in Los Angeles, a lawyer is about $500 an hour in those days, minimum, and they wanted, you know, 20 hours in advance to look over a contract. And a lot of times they would say, this is terrible, don't sign this, if you paid them. And then you go to the record company and see their lawyer, and they say, all right, deal's off will find somebody else. They played the power and, and it instilled fear in you because you fought so hard to get there. Curtis actually said, they'll have to pry my fingers off the door hand or the door frame to get rid of me. And what happened was grunge came in and they just dropped the $2 million project and threw us out the window and said, we'll get a day job anyway. But a lot of it had to do with money, fear, rocking the boat, not being able to say no. I've got a friend right now that's writing me for advice on a contract, and, and I've read his contract, and it's, it's absolutely, he signed it, and it, his life is over. Um, you learn, if you, a lot of guys think they understand what it means, but the way they, they write it, the trickery of a contract, it, it can say 
on page one, uh, paragraph 13, one thing, and then you flip the page over, and it says in paragraph 13 the exact opposite of what they said on the front page. So what happens is you've got about 20 pages, and you're so excited, you just start skimming through and thinking you've got it, right? Yeah. Can you believe that I didn't know what the word perpetuity meant when I was 25 years old? <laughs> I didn't know what it meant. And I signed a contract where it basically meant the guy owned me for the rest of my life. And I had to pay a lawyer to get out of it. The guy said, all right, you want out? Talk to my lawyer. And it cost me a lot of money. But I didn't even know what the word meant. So if anybody out there is listening or reading, read the contract. Go on Google. I mean, you can access that stuff now a lot easier than we could in the old days. And do your own homework. Mm, that's true, David. Let's bring it back to the album now for, for a few minutes. In, ge- in general, how tough are you on yourself when you're recording your vocals? Uh, to the point where I refuse to have a home studio uh, because I found that if I'm at home recording in the bathroom or wherever I set it up, I tend to think that what I did was really good. Um, I really need an outside ear, a better ear than mine, to bring out the best of me. Like Andy, he produced this album, he arranged it, and he mixed it. When I'd sing the track, he'd go, I'm not buying it, dude. He just kind of had his head in his hand and looking at the wall. And he goes, you're not, you're not selling me the song, dude. That's not Dave. Sing the fucking song. So I need that. I'm really hard on myself that way. And a lot of times with low budgets, one thing that's bad about it is you have a certain amount of time to get it done because you're paying a guy a minimal fee. And you got to go in there and rush through 12 songs. And then when you listen back to you, you, go, you start singing along, oh, God, I could have sang it that way. That happens a lot. But in the last few albums, I've, I've been pretty comfortable with, with my delivery. But I've needed outside help, producers, engineers. Yeah. Recording your vocals the way you do now, do you ever look back at the way you did them, like in the 80s and, and the 90s, and the way you did them and the money, the budgets you had, and think, wow, that was a monumental waste of money, all the days we spent doing this? Do I think it was a waste of time? No, a waste of money. Like you spent days trying to do something and now you can do it in 10 minutes. Yeah, it is kind of serious. I mean, if you think about it, the albums that made the most impact on me as a young boy were the albums in the 60s and 70s and they did 10 songs a day. You know, you listen to Free and you listen to Bad Company and those bands and Deep Purple. Those albums are recorded live, you know, and then they go play a gig that night or the next day with no sleep. They didn't need 50 million overdubs like what happened in the 80s. It got, I think it kind of killed itself. These huge bloated budgets and producers that charged a million dollars to sit behind the console and change the score, you know, saying that, let's do 50 whispers on that track. Let's make it sound like Def Leppard. Everybody was kind of trying to write the same album, I think, for about five years. They followed the trend. Bloated budget. It was ridiculous. Now, I'm not really fond of the digital sound, per se. Um, I'm more of a, if it doesn't get it in a couple tracks, I'll move on. Now, you know, and typically if I'm not feeling like the song is really good, I'm not going to sing it good. You know, in the old days, there's many, I did a lot of projects in my life. And I'm not doing that anymore so much. And I would dread the 10 songs. There was always that one or two songs that I'd say for last. And when I listen back, you can really tell that my heart's not in it. Mm. Being solo, I can really say that I'm excited to go to the studio. 
it's a great feeling to have, you know. I really look forward to singing this song today. Yeah. yeah. I'm good in a couple days. And I know it's a good song. I'll move on to another one, flush it out, and the next day I'll go back to the one from the day before and nail it. Okay. You, you can but, I won't, but I won't I won't spend two weeks on a song anymore. I mean I, the accept album was nine months. I mean twelve <laughs> hours a day on vocals. I mean, come on. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and I I remember you telling me in the past that Dieter really, really pushed you on that for your singing. He did. I mean he, he basically destroyed Carlton's voice. I mean you they toured so heavy and then he'd make them sing so hard. You know, for one word. Like I'm still loving you, that first word, time. It was 18 hours to get the right sound. I mean, how? what human ear is really going to hear the difference between track 21 or track 42? <laughs> I mean, really. I know. But the song, the song sold 750,000 B-sides out of 45 in, in France alone. That song. It was a smash hit with Rocky Like a Hurricane on the other side. Mm. Peter says, well, that's why it works. I'm like, come on. I mean, I don't think so. I think the song was great anyway, but... Do you know um, Ron Young, the singer, is in the band Little Caesar? Uh, from uh, he's in Metal Church, right? No, oh, no, I mean Little Caesar. Yeah, yeah, I know Ron. Yeah, right. Yeah. Ron, Ron told me a great story about working with Bob Rock. Bob Rock had just done Doctor Feelgood, the Motley Crue record. Oh God! Uh, right, and he went in and done the Little Caesar record right after that. And after a while, Bob wasn't doing the vocals, and this kept going on for a while. And Ron decided, right, I want to bring it up with Bob. Like, you're recording everybody else. You're not recording any vocals at all. And he said, Bob brought him into the one of the rooms in there. And he showed him a whole line of tape. And he said to Ron, he said, uh, you know what they are? And Ron said, no. He said, they're Vince Neil's vocals for Dr. Feelgood. So what I had to do was take a word here, a syllable here, Two two words here, three words here, another syllable here. Splice the whole thing together to get a vocal performance. And and Ron told yeah. me Ron told me he said to Bob, "I'm not Vince Neil." <laughs> so you have. Yeah, I mean that's true. I mean Ozzy's the same way. They'll record a word at a time. They'll listen back and they'll say double it. You know, I mean, I mean, it's like being in an egg. Max Norman told me doing an album with Ozzy. It's just it's maddening. You know, sing a line. Listen back, double it. I mean, it goes on for hours. Like I said, it goes back to performance and what kind of a singer you are. You know, I've never really thought much about Vince Neil as a singer, but apparently he's got something, you know. Otherwise, <laughs> people wouldn't be following it and worshiping it. You know, they, I call it the it factor. You either have it or you don't. Mm. So, so did. But those guys, they, they, made it, they made it work for those guys, you know, Bob Rock and them. Yeah. De- oh, definitely, definitely. So, what was the first song you wrote for this album? Because normally the first track can set the direction for it. I'm assuming it's one of the really heavy ones. Uh, let's see. Um, Cacophony of Souls. That track was actually written to go on the Million Heart. I wrote that with uh, Martin Frank from Shotgun Revolution. He had written Karma with Me, Two Points of Dead Man, and another track called Heart of Stone. And Cacophony of Souls. I demoed that in Montana kind of a scratch. And I always knew the song had something, but it didn't have a solo section yet. So I handed it over to Andy and he arranged the solo part for it. Now, the song Chasing the Shadows was kind of a template setter as well because Andy and I had recorded that song years ago and the record company made the running list but failed to put it on the CD. So we got the CDs and we put it on and it wasn't even on the album. 
And he just about had a, a meltdown. He was screaming, throwing things. You couldn't believe it. Mm. And we had that song, and he said, Dave, if we're going to go heavy, we should be chasing the shadows again. So we listened to it, and I went, you know what? That's a great song. Let's do it. So yeah, those two songs were already written. Um, Born in Our Hands came really quick from Andy, the riff, and uh, Bleed. Um, and then Malta, the bass player, who I've been playing with for a few years and done some albums with and touring with, he, uh, I, I stay at his house a lot when I'm in Hamburg. And he was up, he's a night owl, and he walks around the house all night, you know, just like a kid, you know, he can't sleep. And he was playing guitar, and he played the music for Collective Anesthesia. And I woke up, and I go, what is that? And he goes, it's one of the songs I'm writing. He goes, I'd really like to add my writing stuff to something to record someday, rather than just playing your song. I said, that's great. What is that? Play it again. And then he played me uh, Perfect World. And I said, those are going on the album. Um, <laughs> so those songs kind of set the whole, the whole mood, I think, for lack of a better word, of the album. Yeah. Um, the title track, the vocals on it, especially in the in the beginning, were they like that in, in, when you wrote it? Or, you know, your lower register on your voice, that's something I haven't really heard before. Actually, I started doing it on uh, the track Live Before You Die on Resilient Heart, and I'm, I'm a big David Bowie fan. Uh, and, I, and I come from country music, and, and those guys, they don't do vocal gymnastics, right? They can deliver a song in a baritone voice and, you know, I always liked crooners like Jim Morrison and Bing Crosby and guys like that. Hmm. Um, but no, that was intentional. And I've actually been asked about that song numerous times. Is that you or, or a guest singer without their name on the album? I go, no, it's me. So what I realized is, why am I blowing my load, you know, on the first line? Let's, let's build into it. And I'm really liking how that works for me. So, yeah, I mean, it gives it a different color. And... People point that out to me on every interview. It, it must you like be, the song? It, yeah, I love it. it. It must be a nice thing, right. though, for people to ask you, is it actually you? And then say, yeah, that you kind of, it's, yeah. a, it's a side of your voice that we're not really familiar with, and it's it's nice to get to know it now, you know? Well, you asked me about uh, singing, I think, earlier in the interview. I mean, from the 80s and stuff, you know, I'm not a young kid anymore. I'm 59. Yeah. And I can still work and do, you know, 20 in a row, take a couple of days off, you know, and, but you learn your limits, you know, you get up, things hurt a little more, you, you uh, get to warm up a little longer. I'm completely sober. I don't drink. I don't do anything nefarious. I go to bed early on tour. I get up early. Um, I'm thinking about my instrument more than I did when I was younger. And then you realize when you go to hit those high notes, wait a minute, that's not coming as easy as it did. And I wonder, is that in my head? Am I just thinking I can't do it? And maybe if I had a few drinks, I could really scream it. And then you go, no, back off. And then say, wait a minute, why don't I change the melody and sing it lower here? And then, you know, build into that. And I kind of started teaching myself that, you know. And a lot of times I'll listen to other bands, and especially the 70s bands and 60s bands, and go, man, listen to how they're singing that. I mean, they're not up in the high A register. They're, they're, they're singing a bass line, and it sounds amazing. And I've, I've been on a real Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young kick lately, uh, working on my vocal ear for harmonies. Because those guys are like mad geniuses because David Crosby is kind of a jazz guy. And then they have rock behind it. And then I listen to a lot of Seely Dan and it's the same thing. And it's really hard to get my ear 
to put my voice into those harmonies because, you know, the rock harmonies are all pretty standard, right? Huh. So I'm really trying to study that, and Andy's really good at that. He's really good at hearing that odd extra color to really make that harmony work. Mm. So I think, I think that's vital in a song. People love choruses, especially with a lot of harmonies. And, I, and I'm, even though my album's heavy, I, I mean, you probably noticed, it's still very melodic. Oh, yeah. Um, perfect world, back in the days. I mean, those songs could have been on a Bangalore Choir album. And that's who I am. But I'm also a heavy rock singer. I mean, funny thing was, Malta asked me a question, and I don't know if I told you this before when we talked. Malta looked at me once in the dressing room, and he said, well, who are you as a singer? What kind of a singer are you? Are you a blues rock singer? Are you a metal singer? Or What are you? And it really upset me. I went, oh, my God, who am I? But then when I did Brazilian Heart and I did Cacophony, especially Cacophony, he called me one day and said, that's who you are, Dave. That's David Reese. And I went, wow, you're right. And it, and it, but it was a really shocking question because he's a younger guy and he looked at me and goes, I can't figure out what you are as a singer. And I said, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem, you know, because everybody knows who Vince Neal is, right? Yeah. Everybody knows who David Coverdale is, right? So identifying yourself going back to the coffee and soul, that that's me. That's me taking a risk and going, all the lonely people living in Miami, you know. It's kind of gothic. It's, it's bluesy. It's dark. And then I go on there, da, 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 da. you know, mm. this is a metal chord. D- David, that's the only answer. is it tough as a singer to accept that your voice has changed over the years and you mightn't be able to hit the notes that you used to when you were like 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably like a soccer player or a guy who can't run as fast, you know, um, being sidelined after being, you know, a funny thing when you're young as a singer, it's like, it's just like this huge energy of everything comes out all at once. Right. And you can just sing into the sky. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's, just being ignorant when you're young or you're more physically able or when you get older, you start going, wait a minute, I got to sing five more shows. I better back off and not really let it matter tonight. Um, and you learn too, you know, touring where your limits are and, and, and how much sleep you've had and how much you've talked during the day or uh, when to stop, you know. Uh, yeah, but it, 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 it you know, I, I watched David Coverdale, and to be honest, I mean, the guy, I, I think he should have put his hat up a long time ago. I mean, it's painful to listen to. I mean, he's not the singer he was, and he keeps going out and playing. Everybody's going, oh, my God, it's horrible, but people go, but he's not the singer he was. Now, a guy like Paul Rogers, I listened to him today, blew my mind. I mean, just recently, a live show he did, and it's sounding amazing. Uh, he's a guy that's just, Got the perfect radio hard rock voice that, that that's taking care of himself and seems to have maintained. Glenn Hughes, he's another one. He's a freak. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Definitely. He's a fucking freak. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and he's singing better than he did 30 years ago. I think maybe sobriety has a lot to do with my, my, my stability right now as well because I had a real problem with alcohol. And I thought it was my friend and helping me get through the anxiety and it was actually damaging me more than anything. Now that I'm sober, my, I'm more clear-headed, and, and I feel better. I look better. My voice seems to behave. I <laughs> follow what I'm thinking. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Yeah. Did, did you ever go into a studio recently 
And you're saying you always want to have a soundboard, that there's someone there that will help you with the vocals to guide you. And they've asked you to sing something, and you've said, I can't do that. Um, not, no, not, not really. Um, I've worked with some engineers that aren't into my style of music, and you can kind of see it in their eyes. But they set aside that personal dislike for the heavy stuff and, and really work to make my song better. But, you know, I've had times when I'm, my voice is tired, you know, and I haven't had enough rest and gone, I can't sing that song right well right now. You know, and they say, ah, oh, you sound like you're pushing, dude. Let's go to that little register one and sing that one. Yeah, that sounds better. Let's do that one tomorrow, you know. Yeah, that's happened. But never where I've been asked to do anything more than, than I'm, I'm capable of. Okay. Because I think, I would say, why would I be working with someone like that anyways? Because if they really were, knew my voice and were the best part of me was, why would they try to make, make it different, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, definitely. It's just that I've, I've spoken to a lot of singers recently, and a lot of them now are, you know, they're, they're more well-known for the stuff they did a long time ago, and they all say the same thing, that it's great they're known for those songs, but damn, it's fucking hard to sing them now. They're so fucking high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say that. I mean, I'm lucky, though, like with the accept stuff, I can still hit those notes, but I won't lie and say they're just as powerful. I've learned how to morph my voice into sounding that way, but it's, I don't feel that balls deep, you know, power coming out of me. And even a guy like Rob Halford, look how he's singing now. He sounds great, but he's not hitting those notes on every song. He's weaving in and out of those parts and letting you have it in certain parts. But uh, you, know, you got it's, it's not. You can have all these metal singers that show off their vocal gymnastics, but how long do they last? Not yeah. to the freak like Bruce Dickinson or you know Glenn Hughes. I mean, they're able to do it in every song, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a little disappointing. Age is a strange thing, you know. I had a friend that I talked to on Messenger chat the other day. He's telling me about being in New York, and he's hooked up with some pretty heavy cats. And he said, "I went to run across the street in traffic. My brain said run, and my legs stood behind me, and I fell flat on my face." <laughs> <laughs> you know. I think that's my reaction time is definitely slowed down, and it's just part of it, you know. Mm, mm. So, David, just to wrap it up, just to wrap it up, um, what do you think is going to happen moving forward now about playing shows? Did you have any shows booked for this, and now you can't do them? Uh, yeah, I, I, real quick wrap up. I I had my first shows were 13 and 14 of March for record release parties in Germany. Great ticket sales, big big events. And we started hearing this rumor of this virus taking over and a possible lockdown of the Lombardi area where I live. And my wife works with the municipality, and it was 11 p.m. the weekend before we left. And she said, oh, my fucking God. I said, what? And she said, they just closed our area. No travel, no leaving. I said, that's cool. I can still go to Germany. And she's like, no, you can't leave the country. Switzerland, we were going to drive together. It's about five hours. And, uh, this one wouldn't allow me into the country because I come from the, the highly infected area. And the funny thing about this virus, the studio that I used to do, uh, I just did some demos for a guy. Well, actually, it's turned into an album. His name is Stefan Georg. I was in Cadonio, Italy, where the first guy in this area reported, they reported him ill. In a music school where they have kids during the day singing in a studio where all these kids have been playing instruments uh. with the engineer. And, 
the next couple of days later, he's telling me, uh, I've just been told to go stay in my house. They locked off Cadonio. That's 30 minutes from my house. Okay. Yeah. So I was in the middle of the war zone. So I've lost um, all of April in the UK. I was really excited about going there to play. We lost that. That was to begin on the 4th of, uh, or the 6th of April. Uh, 10 dates, I think. That blew out. I lost March. And I have six or seven shows in May and early June in Holland and uh, Belgium and Luxembourg. But I'm watching every day that this thing is rampant in Holland. And a guy called me yesterday from Holland and said, you're not playing. It's not going to happen. So I probably lost May. Hopefully I filed this June. And then in, November, in September, I've got a big Bangalore Choir um, special VIP show that I agreed to. Then I'm going to play, and then I head into Scandinavia. So if this all falls apart, then I'll, I hope that September is still available. But I can tell you, I spoke with Ferdy during during today from Axel Pell, the keyboard player. Mm. They're talking reschedule everything for 2021. Um, my manager handles Graham Bonnet. He handles Girl School, um, Riot Five. Um, they're losing shows every day. So it's looking like we're going to cram everything into the end of the year, which is going to cause a cluster because of all the bands trying to get the available venues. Another problem is some great venues that I've played multiple times have just uh, posted that they've, they've gone bankrupt. They're closing the doors for good. We're in trouble, man. Yeah. I think one of the things, and, and people have said this to me as a fan, I'm a fan of this music. All these bands are announcing rescheduled shows for a couple of months down the line, like July. And I'm like, mm. how do you even know they're going to take place? Like, and then you've exactly. other, ba the other bands are announcing them for 2021. Like Joe Satriani just rescheduled these shows for this time next year. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's, I know it's tough on you guys. Cause you know, you've all this income from the road that you're not going to make, but are you going to write music now that you, you know, what are you, what are you going to do musically then to, to yeah, tide it over? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sitting here today. Uh, I've got a lot to write about, you know, we're talking about it. Um, I'm not a, you know, pop baby world world singer, lyricist. I, I like to write stories about what I am engaged in around me with people and what I see. And I'm writing a lot. I'm taking advantage of the downtime. I'm a little store crazy, but I can honestly say, I mean, my fans are loyal. I know they'll come see me, but I think we have a bigger issue with the world and the planet right now. And this is no joke. I mean, I was going to go back to Montana because, you know, if I lost these May dates and stuff and get my regular job back, but I found out all my friends are being laid off. They're not even working. Hmm. This has just begun. I mean, Montana is a boom state. I mean, there's eight to 10 years of houses being built in my area and they've shut down production because the banks approve the loans, but they're not releasing the money now. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's no joke. I mean, so there's a lot of good friends of mine are writing me just to say, Hey man, I'm laid off, you know? And then the government gives them $1,200 to survive on. I mean, if you're me, that'll cover a month's expenses for a family of four. What am I going to do the next month? But I've been really lucky with record sales because we did a great campaign as pre-sale prior to this, the release date of March 13th. Okay. And it's still selling. Thank God. I mean, I hate streaming. You know, I, I'm, I'm a physical guy, product guy. 
but at least that outlet is there. So all these people at home that are trapped going, well, I ordered the CD and now they're saying it could be three months, but I, I'm streaming it anyway. Well, that's income slightly for me in about a year. It's interesting you bring that up, David. I'll, I'll, we'll just finish on this. Um, a couple of people I've had on in the last week or two, I've asked the question, are you going to push back the release date of the of the of the album because they mightn't be able to get the CD and they're kind of unsure how that's all going to work. I know Frontiers has postponed everything. I think till July. Yeah, because uh, there's nobody in there's nobody in the pressing plants for the CDs or the vinyl. <laughs> they're all full to say, oh yeah, it's it's a real uh, economic. Uh, slap in the face for even the people that work in those plants. I mean, not just the artists. Uh, um, yeah, man, it's it, it's scary. Mm. And uh, I just pray that you're healthy, your your children are fine, give them love every day. Um, my family's fine so far. My two boys are in their twenties here, and my wife is healthy. I can go start crazy a few more months if I have to. Mm. I'm gonna write another album. Good. It's gonna be tough to follow this one up. This is a great album. I'm going to take my time and write the best album that I can. Yeah, well, David, let everyone know where they can get the record or get in touch with you. In the United States, uh, you know, you've got your Amazon outlets, um, and I know they've sold out most of them, but they're on back order. Uh, NEH Records in Colorado is, is distributing my album. Uh, in New Germany, of course, you've got Alberto Records um, and Amazon here, and of course, you know, Spotify and all the streaming outlets. Um, Go to my, my Facebook page, David Reese Official, um, and then I have davidreeseofficial.info, where I have great merchandise that can help put a few beans on the table if I can move some of this tour merchandise and some CDs and vinyl. I still have stock from the Zillion Heart that I kept from the tour. I have some Circle of Silence vinyl here. I have Bangalore Choir on Target vinyl that I should be receiving whenever the post opens again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, just reach out to me. I like to talk to the fans. We can sit down and talk because I mean, I'm always been, I'm always reachable. You know? Yeah, excellent. Well, David, listen, it's been a pleasure again. So stay safe, my friend. Be safe, Richie. All right. God bless you, my brother. Be safe and take care of those crops. Make some nice vegetables. I will. <laughs> All right, David. I'll talk right. to you again. All right, bye. We'll talk again about a new album. I'm sure. De- <laughs> definitely. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye, bye, my friend. Got to say, every time we have David on the show, he just lays it out and just a kind of a brutally honest guy, which is kind of a treat with, uh, you know, these days of uh, people guarding everything they say and kind of the social media bullshit and all that. But to have somebody like them that's just forthright, lays it out, always great to have him on the show. And of course, a big part of having him on the show is to tell you guys to go out and pick up your own copy of Cacophony of Souls. So support David and, you know, all the other artists out there as well and and go out there and while you're quarantined and you're in there, get yourself some new metal and try to give your soul a little bit of rest and get to, you know, feeling some of the power that metal makes you feel when you listen to it. So we will continue to plug along each and every week. Not sure what else is new. What is up for next week? Got a few things to choose from. And then also we're trying to see what else we can work up for some special episodes in between as well. Rishi's had a couple of offers out there as well for some things that might be ideal to just do them, edit them, spin them right around and spit them right out again. Kind of like some of the bands today where they, instead of doing an album, they're just going to pop a, a track out here and a track out there. So uh, we might try to do a little bit of that as well. But uh, anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. 
So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, be safe. And as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.